Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would help us not to hide from our own tears. You would help us understand our tears. And in Jesus' name, amen. Wouldn't it be nice to stop the tears? Because we live, you know, in, in just a world of tears. Famine, persecution, Repression, abuse in places like the Ukraine right now across the globe. I've traveled to places like Romania, Colombia, China, Cambodia. Met with Christians who've been persecuted, tortured even for their faith. And wouldn't it be nice to stop the tears? A few months ago, I got to spend a couple days with Daryl Scott, a new friend of mine. Fifteen years ago, April 20th, two young men opened fire on his daughter Rachel at Columbine High School, two bullets lodged in her, her leg, one hit her in the torso. When she tried to crawl away, one of the shooters grabbed her by the hair and, and asked, do you believe in God? She said, you know I do. And they said, well, go be with him and shot her in the head. I'm sure Daryl has shed a whole lot of tears, and wouldn't it be nice to stop those tears, Rachel's tears? Wouldn't it be nice to stop your tears? And shouldn't we stop those tears? Revelation 21, 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And Jesus said, I came that my joy might be in you. And Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Has Christ not provided everything that we need at his cross? And so maybe we need to stop our tears. As we preached last week, when we invite Jesus to abide with us, he's begotten or born within us. It's, it's Christmas in us. And the angel says, behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, a great joy. Last week, we began a series of sermons titled Jesus Stories. And so let's begin with a Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Wise men from the east come and they visit King Herod looking for the king of the Jews. But Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled. You know, new kings can be Troubling. The, the wise men find Jesus and give him gifts, but they don't tell King Herod where they find him. Matthew 2, verse 13. Now, when they had departed, the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to, to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, Joseph in Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Wouldn't you like to stop those tears? Well, King Herod was threatened by King Jesus. You know, King Herod controlled all of Israel, but he could not control one human heart, one human tear. Already Herod had poisoned his favorite wife, murdered his brother-in-law, two sons, and countless others because although he controlled all Israel, he could not control one tear. So I bet Herod noticed the tears in Bethlehem, don't you think? It was shortly after this time in the spring of 4 BC that Herod ordered all the notable Jews in Jerusalem to come to his deathbed where he was dying in Caesarea. Upon their arrival, he had them locked in the Hippodrome, the arena in Caesarea, and gave orders to his sister to have them all slaughtered uh, on the moment of his death, so that upon his death, all Jerusalem would weep. He tried to steal their tears. Stumbled on this video this week. grieving the death of Kim Jong-il. I think we all want tears, just like Kim Jong-il did. We, we all would like someone to weep for us or weep over our absence. And yet, the most powerful kings in this world cannot command, even though they try to command, they cannot command one tear. So King Herod tried to steal the tears. But upon his death, his sister Salome released all the Jews in the Hippodrome in the arena, and there was much rejoicing <laughs> throughout all Jerusalem. But just think, Herod could not command one tear, and yet every baby in Bethlehem commanded an entire river of tears. Every baby boy, every baby boy except one, the last one the eschatos one. Every baby boy except one, for Joseph was warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. Joseph in Egypt, uh, warned to flee to, to well, that's, that's pretty cool, but, but I don't know, kind of disturbing as well, don't you think? Because you think, God, um, couldn't you have just supplied a, a few more dreams? Why was Jesus saved while all the other babies died? And God, it didn't just happen by chance. It was like you predestined it. For it fulfilled the ancient prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 15. Rachel is weeping for her children. You'll remember that Rachel is the wife, or was the wife, of, of Jacob. 
whose name was changed to Israel by the wrestler at the river Jabbok. The wife of Jacob and her son was Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. Joseph in Egypt. And, and then all Israel ended up enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. That's, that's a lot of weeping. But check this out. Genesis 15, the very start of the Bible, when God cuts the covenant for Abraham, he, he tells him this sorrow will happen 400 years, though, sojourn. Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah prophesies Rachel weeping from, from, her, from her tomb. But now she weeps as the Israelites are led through Ramah, where her, her tomb was, led through Ramah on the way to captivity in Babylon. And at Christmas time, Rachel weeps again. Rachel is like mother to Israel and a picture of us, Mother Church. And her tears happen according to plan. About a month after Rachel Scott's funeral, Daryl Scott received a phone call from a man that he'd never met, never, never known, never heard of. And the man shared that he had had a dream. He lived in another state. He sure they had three dreams in his life uh, that he knew were from God. And this last dream was of Rachel and her eyes. And in the dream, her eyes were weeping like just a, a fountain of tears. And the tears were watering something. He didn't know what the something was. And he begged Daryl to tell him. Daryl didn't know. A few days later, Jefferson County Sheriff's Department released evidence from the Columbine shootings, and Daryl received Rachel's backpack. In it, he found her diary with a bullet hole clear through. He wept uncontrollably at what she'd written. She knew that she was going to die that year, and then he turned to the last page and found this picture that she had drawn. Her eyes, weeping a fountain of tears, actually 13 tears. There were 13 victims, one teacher and 12 students, like the 12 tribes of Israel, like the 12 disciples of Christ. The tears water a rose, which Daryl found drawn in another diary from a year before. The, the tears turn to blood as they hit the rose. In the other diary, the rose grows out of a columbine. Jesus has been called the Rose of Sharon, and his bride, Song of Solomon 2.2, is the Rose of Sharon. Rachel means female sheep, and you know, female sheep give birth to lambs, and Jesus is a lamb. In Scripture, Rachel is mother to the children of Israel, and well, that would include Jesus, the Passover lamb, and his bride, the church. Well, a couple weeks after Daryl found the journal, he shared this story with some students in Tennessee. After he gave his talk, this young woman came forward just, just sobbing. And she said, I have to talk to you because before I knew what you were going to say, before your talk, I think God told me to share with you some Bible verses. Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. Maybe Rachel's tears are according to plan. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in all the Bible, great for scripture memorization. John eleven thirty five. 35, 
Jesus wept. And he was definitely according to plan. Luke 19, he weeps over Jerusalem, his bride. John 11, he weeps at the death of of Lazarus. Although, as the text makes very clear, he could have prevented the death of Lazarus in, in the first place. You know, for about 14 years, Susan and I spent countless hours in prayer uh, with one particular friend who had been ritually abused for decades. She had every reason to, to weep, every reason that the women in Bethlehem had to weep, but she was terrified to weep. Over and over again in visions that she would have, and my wife would also see, Jesus would would show up. And, and over and over again, Jesus would just stand there weeping. And then he would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. At first, I was kind of confused by that. And, and even a bit angry because it was clear that he had the power, or at least God, his Father, had the power to stop the tears before there were ever any tears to, to weep in the first place. I, I finally concluded that I'm sorry does not mean I wish that there were never any tears, but I feel your sorrow and I weep your tears. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. He's commanded by God to weep. And through Jeremiah, God commands Jerusalem to weep. Jeremiah 14, they are to weep, and yet there's no water for weeping. John 16, 20, in Jerusalem, Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. He says, you will weep. You may remember that that very night, Peter did weep. Just as Jesus had prophesied. Peter had sworn fidelity to Jesus, remember? And Jesus said, "Uh, you are a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And only a few hours after swearing fidelity to Jesus, Peter denies him three times. Jesus just looks at Peter, and Peter literally comes undone with, with weeping. He's weeping over the death of Christ, and he's weeping over the death of King Peter. That is his own ability to build Christ's church. He's weeping over the death of his ego, over the death of his world, just as the women in Bethlehem wept over the death of their own labor and their own kingdoms. And you know, Herod was their king. I mean, when Herod murdered their babies, he must have murdered himself in their hearts. Well, Peter wept. Bitterly. You know, somewhere I read that humans are the only animals that weep. I mean, other animals cry to get irritants out of their eyes, but it's like humans cry to get irritants out of their soul. And did you know that if it weren't for tears, we'd all be blind? Well, anyway, we're just wondering why God doesn't stop all the tears. And why God would even predestine the tears when we thought stopping the tears was exactly what we were aiming for. You know, C.S. Lewis referred to a man named George MacDonald as his mentor. And uh, I tend to think George MacDonald was a prophet. In 1895, he published the novel Lilith, in which a certain Mr. Vane 
travels to this mysterious and strange world. At one point, Mr. Vane encounters a land of delightful children who are subjected to dull-witted, nearly blind giants. The children are innocent, but they're afraid to grow for fear of turning into dull-witted giants. For when they hoard food and possessions for themselves, that's exactly what happens. They grow bigger, but duller, and blinder, and stupider. Mr. Avain is trapped by the giants, but escapes the giants and tries to find a way to help the, the children. The children live among the giants, but the giants are like blind to the children. He tries to help the children, and he's concerned that the children just don't have any water. Finally, he encounters Mr. Raven, who is a picture of, of Jesus the Christ. Mr. Raven rebukes Mr. Vane for not helping the children the way he should have helped the children. He, he could have dug a well. And now I quote, you saw that they were not growing, says Mr. Raven, or growing so slowly that they had not yet developed the idea of growing. They were even afraid of growing. But surely I had no power to make them grow, protests Mr. Vane. You might have removed some of the hindrances to their growing. What are they, asked Mr. Vane. I didn't know that they're the word. I did think perhaps it was the want of water. Of course it is, replies Mr. Raven. They have none to cry with. I would gladly have kept them from requiring any water for that purpose, says Mr. Vane. No doubt you would. The aim of all stupid philanthropists. Why, Mr. Vane, but for the weeping in it, your world would never have become worth saving. He's saying, Mr. Vane, you should have helped them weep so they could grow. But to prevent their weeping, why? That's the aim of all stupid philanthropists. Just after Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, he informs Peter that he must suffer many things and be killed. And Peter says, this shall never happen. In other words, Jesus, I'm going to stop the tears. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not on the side of God, but of man. You vain and stupid philanthropist. But Jesus is not a stupid philanthropist. He's going to help Peter weep and grow. I think we Americans may be stupid philanthropists or dull-witted giants. You know that other cultures have these rich and complex traditions to help people walk through grief. Last week was Ash Wednesday for Roman Catholics when they put ashes on their forehead. And remember, dust to dust and ashes to ashes. The Psalms, they were like a recipe book for, for expressing grief. Psalm 6-6, they would sing this stuff, okay? Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. You see, they thought that God valued their tears like you value treasure. Psalm 56, 8, you have kept count of my tossing. You have put my tears in your bottle. In ancient times, it was the custom to collect the tears of mourners at funerals in little jars called lacrimatories or tear jars. Um, this is a picture of one actually from the time of Christ. They would find these in the tombs throughout the Roman Empire. The jars were placed in the tomb of the deceased like treasure that the deceased had earned in their life. I, I, I mean, maybe your tears are placed in a bottle that's placed in Jesus' tomb 
like treasure. You know, I didn't plan this, but just realized this week that 10 years ago, last night, my father died. Because when he died, I was so busy. I did the funeral for like 600 people and then just went back to work. I think I'm still scared to cry those tears. Well, other cultures put a higher value on tears. Americans are so dead set on being happy and our inalienable right to happiness. I mean, we're so dead set on being happy that we make ourselves miserable. And we evangelicals, I think, maybe we're the worst. We, we seem to feel so guilty for feeling sad. Well, I think we make ourselves depressed. Sad that we're sad. And then mad that we're sad about being sad and not glad. And sad that we're mad about being sad that we're sad and, and, and not glad. And mad that we're sad that we're mad that we're sad and sad that we're mad. We make ourselves depressed. I mean, if we stumbled upon Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane, I don't think we'd watch with him. I don't think we'd weep with him. What would we do? We'd call a psychiatrist. Right? Have him heavily medicated. Which, he just won't stop weeping. What's, what's wrong with him? We don't like weeping or weeping with those who weep. So we do whatever we can to stop weeping. We don't weep. We don't grow. We just get bigger <laughs> like dull-witted giants. Maybe we bury this, bury this sorrow, you know, in layers of food and cars and houses and possessions. Maybe we numb ourselves to this sorrow with addictions and defense mechanisms. Maybe we distract ourselves from this sorrow with busyness and cell phones and constant noise. Maybe we even try to build the church like, like Peter. Maybe we cover this sorrow with anger. You know, it's not okay to let the sun go down on your anger. But Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Maybe our anger and resentment turns into despair. Depression and, and despair. It's not okay to give in to despair, but you can be sad. In fact, if you want to know Jesus, I think you kind of have to be sad. At some point, you need to know his sorrow. It's not okay to weep as one who has no hope, but if you want to know Jesus, well, Jesus wept. And Peter wept. Peter wept, and Judas hung himself. Jesus said that in the outer darkness, men weep and gnash their teeth. But, you know, when you weep and gnash your teeth, what do you do? You, you clench your teeth. Trying to stop the tears. And it's not really weeping. In Lilith, as Mr. Vane visits the house of the dead, someone says, those, alas, are not the tears of repentance. Self-loathing, listen, self-loathing is, is not sorrow. Yet it is good, for it marks a step on the way home, and in the father's arms the prodigal forgets the self that he abominates. 
You know, it was just the look of Jesus that set Peter to weeping. And I see no biblical reason that Jesus may no longer look at Judas once Judas has descended into hell, for Jesus has descended into hell. So why won't we weep? Maybe because we, we lack water. Or maybe we've tried to bottle our tears. I mean, turn ourselves into our own lacrimatories. And maybe that's all the same thing, bottling, bottling it up like that. I mean, after all, we were born weeping. And this fallen world, it provides ample cause for weeping. And yet we're afraid. I think we're afraid that if we start weeping, we may never stop. True weeping, you see, is a great loss of control. Weeping and gnashing your teeth is hanging on to control and then trying to manipulate other people with your tears. But true weeping is the loss of all control. And true weeping comes to an end. For, for years, Susan and I prayed for our friend who had been so horribly abused. And for years, Jesus would appear in these visions, weeping and saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And for years, she wept and often gnashed her teeth, loathing herself and despising the weeping. One night, she shared with us one of her very first memories. She was a little girl. She was abused. And she couldn't weep for for fear of more abuse. As we prayed through this memory, Jesus appeared in the memory and he said this to her, I want you to let go of your heart. And she literally cried out, no, no, no. And, and then she said to me, Peter, if I start weeping, I'm afraid I'll never stop and I won't be able to control the sound. Well, we all agreed that it was a bad idea to argue with Jesus. So we went down into our basement because the kids were asleep upstairs and asked the spirit of Jesus to help her. She buried her face in my shoulder and began to scream and weep and wail like Rachel weeping for her children. And after a long time, she stopped. The weeping stopped. In this vision, Jesus had asked her to give him her sorrows, and when she did, he told her, I will hold them for all eternity. <laughs> Maybe he really does keep our tears in a bottle. And then in this vision, Jesus took her by the hand and led her out of that room in which her heart had been imprisoned as a little girl, led her out of the room, and she sat in our basement, a lovely, grown woman. You see, Jesus really is the king of hearts. And he is infinitely more powerful than King Herod. He made the stars, and he owns all the tears. But now you may be thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute. What about those babies in Bethlehem? Those women were crying for their babies, not Jesus. Isn't God trying to steal our tears just like King Herod? I mean, does he even care about those babies? 
We know God can't steal tears if he created them in the first place. They're all his. And God, through Jesus, made every one of those babies and weeps for every one of those babies. He weeps for you. A friend of mine here at church once had a vision of Jesus. Jesus was weeping, and Angelo saw his name in every tear. And that was the breakthrough he needed to grow. Jesus wept for him. He weeps for all. He said, whatever you do, Under the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. He was in those babies in Bethlehem somehow. You know, wherever we weep over the loss of something good, we weep over the death of God. For God alone is good. He didn't steal the tears from those babies. He was in those babies. They're his babies. He was in Rachel. She's his bride and his mother. Jesus weeps in us. He weeps through us. He weeps for us. I've told you of uh, several times of the day in my life, I wept more than any other day before or since. Like Peter, I wept bitterly. Picross. It's a word that comes from the bitter herbs, that the Jews were commanded to eat on the Passover lamb. I wept bitterly, and it was absolutely delicious. It was at a conference in Canada when I audibly heard God say, Peter, you don't love my bride very much, do you? And it was like in that moment he looked at me, And suddenly I knew, I absolutely knew that I had gone into the ministry out of this anger at the church for wounds inflicted upon my father. I decided to build the church because Jesus was obviously doing a very poor job. I laid on the floor and, and just wept. I wept and wept and wept for Like an hour or two, I don't know how long it was. I wept and I wept, but the weeping, this is the thing, the weeping was absolutely delicious. And this is, I think, the wildest part. And this is why I'm telling you, the tears didn't feel like my tears. I had the distinct impression that they were not my tears. They were Jesus' tears, his tears for me. For my father, for his bride, his church, his tears for Jerusalem, his tears for Rachel. You know, if you give your sorrow to Jesus, whose sorrow is it? Class? Jesus, right. You gave your sorrow. Who suffered first from the foundation of the world? Jesus, right? Well, then you're not experiencing your sorrow. You're sharing in his sorrow. His sufferings. You weep his tears, and his tears have a purpose. Psalm 126, verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. He who goes out weeping, bearing this. Maybe God is the sower. And his word is is the seed. And maybe every tear is his tear. And whenever we have reason to weep, God is calling us to commune with him in his labor. Tears create. Tears create communion 
with God. Tears give birth to Christ in us. The death of King Herod is the birth of King Jesus. When we weep, we mourn the death of our world, the death of ourselves. Uh, we mourn the loss, uh, our loss of control. But you see, the death of King Peter is the birth of King Jesus in me. And God in me is called the church. His church. God's church. Peter wept bitterly, and then on him, Christ built his church. I wept bitterly in Canada that day, and that night God showed me that he was everywhere loving me, and that he had called me uh, to serve his bride, his church. And I have never, ever, ever experienced such joy, outrageous joy. Daryl Scott wept uncontrollably as he read Rachel's diary in his truck. And then he wrote the book, Rachel's Tears, and founded Rachel's Challenge, which goes into high schools worldwide, and presenters tell students about Rachel's Tears. They use non-religious words to communicate the love of God. So far, they've reached over 21 million students. They teach them to weep together rather than to weep alone in outer darkness, gnashing their teeth. But you see, tears have a purpose. Tears clear our eyes of irritants, and our chief irritant is our old self-centered selves. Tears help us lose ourselves and see God. They produce communion with God. That's God in us, the kingdom of God, and, and God is happy. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this, blessed, it means happen, makarios, blessed, happy are you who weep now, for you will be comforted. In Matthew, Matthew, blessed, happy are you who mourn. You see, maybe sorrow and joy are, are not opposites. Paul writes this, rejoice in the Lord always. Just a few sentences before he wrote, I have often told you and now tell you with tears. He's, he's telling him with tears to rejoice in the Lord always. Maybe sorrow and joy are not opposites, just like a womb and a baby are not opposites. Maybe sorrow makes space for joy. Sorrow is what? Well, I think it's weeping at the experience of the absence of God. And joy is experiencing the very presence of God. Sorrow is weeping at the death of Christ. Joy is the experience of his resurrection. Sorrow is a loss of control. And joy is also a loss of control. Maybe sorrow is the burning edge of joy. Whatever the case, sorrow is temporal and joy is eternal. Jeremiah 31, right before the prophecy of Rachel's tears, God says, I will turn your sorrow into joy. You will trade in your sorrow for joy. I'm gonna turn your sorrow into joy. Jesus said this to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and you will lament, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Surely, if I knew for certain that all my stones should be changed into gold, writes Meister Eckhart, the more and larger the stones I had, the better I should be pleased. Jesus said, your sorrow will turn into joy. He said it'll be like a woman when she gives birth. In the same way, his disciples will give birth 
to joy. And no one will take their joy from them. It's eternal. His disciples will give birth to joy. And even the women in Bethlehem were giving birth to joy. Their own joy. Listen to Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. And your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. A, a reward for your labor. And what was her labor? Well, I guess it was this weeping. And uh, a reward, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. We have an enemy. And those that have been exiled to his land will come back. Rachel gets her babies back. We get our lives back with new hearts. Verse 17 of chapter 31, your children shall come back. They shall come back to their own country. Verse 25, for I will satisfy, I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul I will replenish. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, my way within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They'll come back. Some of you are terribly sad. And you're convinced that something is terribly wrong. But maybe something is terribly right. So rather than being sad that you're sad, or mad that you're sad that you're sad, or sad that you're mad that you're sad, uh, that you're sad and, and not glad, I mean, maybe you should be glad that you're sad. I mean, go ahead and be sad. Just be sad with Jesus. For then you're sharing his sorrow. And his sorrow turns into joy. See, God is not a stupid philanthropist. There's a reason for the tears. God even supplies the water for your tears. So if you have trouble uh, weeping and, and you need to grow, this is where he supplies water for your tears. I mean, he really does give us everything that we need at his cross. Listen to God through Zechariah. Uh, chapter 12, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, 13 verse 1, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Maybe the tears turn into a river of living water. When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, says the Lord. You do realize that the Lord saved that last baby in Bethlehem from Herod in order that we could all deliver him up to death on a tree. And that baby that he saved from death on the tree was himself. 
And it was all according to plan, for his children needed water to cry their tears. And so on that night that the Lord said, your sorrow will turn into joy, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant, the eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is where we learn sorrow. And this is where God takes our sorrow and turns it into joy. So let's confess our sorrow. Would you just close your eyes and pray with me? And make these words your words? Lord, we confess that we cannot create life. At its root, God, I think that's the sorrow, and, and we see everything dying, and we cannot create life. And so we have tried to steal your life. And yet you gave us your life. So, Father, we confess our sin and we thank you for your grace. We surrender to you our tears. Now, while I was preaching, I imagine you were thinking about your tears. Are you hanging on to them? Gnashing your teeth in outer darkness? Well, I want you just to picture your tears. Let them flow into a bottle. You got a bottle. And now just hand the bottle to Jesus. Do you have more? Weep them with Jesus. They belong to him. You are sharing in his sorrow. For he wants you to know his joy. In Jesus' name. Believe the gospel and now worship him. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, bring your sorrows, and let him just look at you. Believe the gospel. Amen. Into eternal
Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the find liberating because you know sometimes I I think I just try so hard to be happy I'm, I'm miserable and uh, it's like Jesus looks at me and says you know what Peter you can be sad it's okay to be sad. There's a whole lot of reason to be sad in this fallen world. But just be sad with me. And then I look in his eyes. He looks in my eyes. And I say, we're sad. <laughs> yes, we're sad. And then I find that I'm kind of happy. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes this I find really liberating and encouraging. I'll get together with, like, a friend, an old friend, a, a good friend. And the friend will tell me that he's sad. Maybe he'll weep. But not in a way to manipulate me as if I need to stop the weeping. Because you know what? I don't think God ever told me that I have to stop somebody's weeping. But he did tell me that I'm to weep with those who weep. And then it's like we look at each other and go, we're sad. In fact, there's one friend I, I get together with almost every week who's been going through a lot of stuff. We just go for a walk and it's kind of like... We're sad. And then I find myself kind of happy. We're happy. See, when I weep with those who weep, I find myself rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it's like I've traded in my sorrow and God has given me back joy because I'm communing with another person and I've lost myself in their sorrow and they lose themselves in my sorrow and it's like a river of living water that begins to flow and I think that river is really happy. You know, God cannot wipe away every tear from your face until you first wept those tears, right? So in Jesus' name, may you believe the gospel, weep with Jesus, and let him transform your weeping into joy. In Jesus' name. And now, Michael, um, can I do, you know that I'm trading my sorrow for joy song? Can we do that as the, as the postlude? Okay. Okay. So you can't, you can't trade your sorrow for joy if you never admit to having any sorrow in the first place, right? Okay. So um, uh, believe the gospel. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front here. Have a great week and we'll see you next week. Take it away, Michael, the music man.